This episode is brought to you by GovX, and as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself, and GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX Gives Back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 511 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 511tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 511 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 409 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show, Kate Casey. Now, Kate is the woman behind Reality Life, the podcast. She's also an author and was the woman who interviewed the Norday brothers that then led to me getting them on the show as well. Kate has an incredibly powerful 9-11 story, some great insight into unscripted television. So this is a fantastic conversation. Before we get to that interview, as I say every week, please just take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I love reading your feedback and leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Kate Casey. Enjoy.
Kate, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It means a lot. Beautiful. So I think we should start with the crazy story of how we connected. So I was looking for the Nord A brothers uh, for the last four years, actually. And uh, someone tagged you because you just had them on your podcast. Um, and uh, so let's start with that. So tell me, the Nord A brothers are the, are the brothers that did 9-11, did November 13th, did the, the new Notre Dame documentary. Tell me about your backstory, wanting to talk to them and how you finally got hold of them. I had been looking for them for about two years. Um, I can't even tell you how much that 9-11 documentary meant to me. So I think it was about two years I tried to find them. And I had friends that worked in production and they couldn't find them. And then I think somebody, I, I, I think I put it out in my group, my Facebook group. Like I'm desperately trying to find them. And somehow somebody knew somebody who knew somebody that sent me their email. So I emailed them and waited to hear back from them. And it was like a couple of days. And then when they finally wrote me back, I thought, yes, finally. So I interviewed them and I unsurprisingly became very emotional in the interview. And we talked about the 9-11 documentary and the one that they did on um, the French terrorist attacks. And you can actually hear me weeping at the end of it um, quietly weeping. And then when I hung up with them, I cried for at least five minutes. I just thought it was, I I'm just really touched by their story. And as you will hear when you interview them, they're very humble people and they're not really out there seeking any publicity at all, which is really not my experience with anybody in the entertainment industry. So they're really sort of these unicorns <laughs> and then of course they're brothers and they have this incredible personal story and um i've just found over time that uh, i've done, been doing this for four years that the people that i find to be the most impressive guests are the people that are least uh, the, the least interested in press so it's kind of you know counterintuitive like it's not what you actually would expect but um the people who seek press the most are the least interesting yeah no and even on this i mean there's there's some there's some people who you know for lack of lack of a better description aren't well known as far as a brand uh you know a quote-unquote star that have the highest amount of downloads of any of my podcasts and there are people that are well known that you know are far less and again not the download uh, equals directly success, but yeah, there, there's a yearning, I think, to hear humble, down-to-earth, real people. Absolutely. Especially, I notice in unscripted television, the trend, I always kind of feel like I've got my finger on the pulse, and I, I've noticed a shift into the, this hunger for really authentic storytelling, people who have grit and hustle. More people are interested in those stories versus one of imagery so you take a show like the real housewives of whatever city it may be less people are kind of interested in those people who are not they don't really have a skill set they just have uh, basically the archetype is like someone who is not very self-aware and lives an over-the-top lifestyle so i think people are kind of like sick of that in the same way they get sick of instagram and following people who just post like frothy pictures um, people are more interested in like, 
somebody who's climbed, not climbed, but like, you know, hike their way up the mountain and has like an interesting story in the process. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, I really want to explore the world of, of documentaries and reality television as we get there chronologically. But I'd love to start at the very beginning because I know you've got an interesting early life story. You've got an interesting, um, you know, relationship with, with fire and, and New York. So let's start at the beginning. Um, where were you actually born? And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. I was born in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, but raised in a town called Westchester, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Philadelphia. And I was raised with my mom and my stepfather. My parents were separated by the time I was born and had a very, very bad relationship. So I only spent a couple times with my father before the age of maybe three and then never saw him again until my grandmother's funeral when I was about 18. And then, and then after that, I didn't see him until I was 33. So I was um, uh, not in his life at all. And he made no effort to kind of find me or have a relationship with me. He did with my older sister, but not with me. I had two other half sisters, but they one was considerably older than me. She's 10 years older and one's four years younger than me. So the full sister and I were close, but when I was in the eighth grade, no, not eighth grade, sorry, even, even smaller than that. No, I think I was in the sixth grade. She was sent off to boarding school. And then I went to that boarding school as well when I was in ninth grade after she had graduated. So I went to the Milton Hershey School in Hershey, Pennsylvania, which is a school for children that come from the wrong side of the door of opportunity. Most of the kids you have to um, be financially and emotionally needy. So my classmates were either orphaned or born into or raised in a single parent family, had to live below the poverty level. And they came from predominantly urban areas like New York City, Philadelphia, some in Boston, and had very dysfunctional families. So in one way, it was great because I was finally around people who also had weird parents. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was hard to be dropped off at 14 years old at a student home and your mother drives away and you have to live with a bunch of girls that you barely know and house parents who overnight become you're reliant on them for everything. And the, if they didn't like you, then you kind of got the short end of the stick, which I did. My house parents did not seem to like me. Um, and always, I, I remember those house parents used to write progress reports and they would say, Katie always, you know, really wants attention. And I've, now that I look back in retrospect, I'm like, well, yeah, I was abandoned by my dad and then my mom at 14 on the front steps of your house. Of course I would be you know, seeking any attention because it's a traumatic experience. So um, anyway, the the school was very strict. We did a ton of chores and um, I was only allowed to call my mom um, when I could get access to the phone. So with 16 girls, there were like 10 minute slots between two hours or so. So if you went to use the phone in your 10 minute slot and you called somebody and they weren't home or the phone was busy, then you're shit out of luck. So I remember one time it was like three months went by and I never even talked to my mom. So the good thing about that is you kind of grow up to be really self-reliant and it was a school that was very multicultural. So I learned so much about other people and the way they live and 
race and faith. And it was just, that was a really great experience too. So, um, from there I graduated and then I went to school in Washington, DC. I thought I would work in politics. I got a degree in political science and worked on all these campaigns, worked at the white house. And then once I graduated, I ended up working at a PR firm that repped former senators that had gone back to their law firms. And so that's kind of how I fell into it. So I did that for quite some time and ended up owning my own PR firm. And basically, I was a media consultant for global law firms. So my job was to meet with an attorney, find out about their practice area, and figure out ways to get in front of potential clients. So let's say it was somebody who was an intellectual property attorney with clients in the aerospace industry. I'm figuring out ways for the general counsel of an aerospace company to read an article that includes a quote from that attorney or highlights their practice. So it required me to read and watch the news all day long, which was great because that's what I love to do anyway. And at a very young age to be a young woman working with much older men was like another crazy life experience because it required me to have very thick skin and think quick on my feet and to have self-confidence. So that was great. And that was kind of my first chapter in life. And then as I started to have children, I had this nagging pang, if you will, in, in my soul that I'd always wanted to pursue comedy. So I figured out a way, um, just before I had started to have kids to take improv comedy classes. And then when I started to have my kids, I started writing as well, in addition to my company. And I did a lot of anecdotes, um, parenting anecdotes, personal ones, um, and I did stand-up comedy. And then I was invited, oh, I, I started writing recaps of television shows. And um, and from there, I was invited on a podcast, and then I thought I could do a podcast. And so that was four years ago, and I pitched the idea to uh, a network, and the idea was to interview people that had been on reality shows years, abo- years before and to track them down and ask how it changed the tra- trajectory of their life. And that's kind of how it began, and it was always structured in, in the way a television show is with segments with different guests and an opening and a closing. And that's kind of really always stayed true, but in the beginning, I did a lot more of um, – I mean, I, I, I do have reality stars, but not as much. Uh, under the unscripted umbrella now, I do reality shows, docuseries, and documentaries. Because four years ago, the climate was uh, really centered on, or the, the, the eco was really all about reality shows, specifically competitive reality shows. And then as time has gone on, docuseries have really become the thing that people are most interested in. So it's like a hybrid of, reality shows, docuseries and documentaries. And I interview not just the talent, but executive producers and directors and hosts of all of these shows. So it's been great. And, uh, it's kind of perfect for me because I can work at home and I have five small children and I can also really take the time to dive deep into someone's personal story. And I've had the pleasure of interviewing so many different kinds of people. And I do think that that early in life, kind of being around a dysfunctional environment really created created an opportunity for me to have pretty thick skin and to um, to really, I guess I always felt like I'm bigger than this place. 
you know, like I, I, I'm going to make something of it. And I think there's like a social justice element that comes when you're in a dysfunctional home and an emotionally abusive home where you're like, there has to be some justice in that. So I think that, that my childhood mixed with going to the Milton Hershey school kind of set this tone, set the, set the journey, if you will, to where I am today. So that the, the show has been my second chapter and I'm going into my third chapter too, which will now be producing TV shows. Beautiful. Well, I mean, there's so much in there to unpack, but the, the first parallel looking back. So when I, when I grew up, I was on a farm and my dad was a vet and his clients varied literally from, from gypsies, from travelers coming through that he would do a lot of kind of pro bono work for all the way through to members of the extended royal family. So we had, you know, all walks of life walking through our farmhouse. And even though I didn't have the kind of traumatic childhood that you had, I was still exposed to ultimately two types of people, good people and shitheads. You know, it doesn't matter how, how, you know, a color, creed, whatever, the wealth. Um, And that's kind of what I'm, I'm, kind of getting from you with this boarding school experience is is that something that you kind of look back when you're an adult and you're like okay this is this is how I'm able to to speak to someone on a different level I'm not talking a sliding scale up and down but just lateral depending on who the person is that's in front of you I think I can have a conversation with just about anybody and my husband and my friends will tell you I have an ability to get information out of people that no one else can. I think that I'm very, I have a way of being disarming to people. They feel comfortable to kind of um, open it up. Of course, I think part of it is that I ask people questions and people think that's just so simple of an answer. But the truth is few people really ask questions. If you sit down and make somebody feel really good about themselves, um, they will open up. I also think my what I did for, for a career helps with that too, because when you represent attorneys and you're learning all about their practice area, you, you're asking so many different um, questions, but like with, with, let's say I'm pitching a story to a reporter, I have to butter them up. So basically I'd say, you know, I call somebody at wall street journal and say, I know that you've been covering the, I don't know, the Martha Stewart trial, your October 13 article about the implications of the case was excellent. In fact, the second paragraph, when you mentioned that clause in director and an officer's insurance really, I think, encapsulates the problem that companies now face. The fact that I would go out of my way to point something out, that disarms someone. And they're like, well, they've done their homework. Like what I did mattered. So then they're more willing to talk to my client and then put them in the article that they do the next time around, they cover the case. And then that attorney gets the exposure because people are like, wow, um, he's being quoted in a wall street journal article, or she's being quoted. They must be in the best in their business. So I kind of take that to when I'm interviewing somebody that I really go out of my way to make them feel special. So, you know, that's just like a great skill in life too. If you're talking to somebody and you say, wow, I read that you were a Pulitzer Prize winning um, author and that you covered the San Bernardino shooting. What was that like for you? And what was the mental health toll that it took on you as a reporter? And then people were like, wow, that's a great question. No one really thinks about that. Well, I have to tell you, Kate, blah, blah, blah. And then they open up in a whole new way. And it's just by doing kind of your background research and asking questions and asking in a very kind and loving way, people really tend to open up. Um, 
And then people, when people open up to you, then you find commonality. And then when you have commonality, you find that you're willing to push each other's boundaries in a new way. And then you learn from one another. And then at the end of it, maybe you have a friendship that will continue well after the interview. So I kind of think that all life experiences kind of aid in what I do now, um, but also just in like general life. And when I meet somebody and you know, I joked in the before we started recording about the vortex, but like my husband's like, oh, there, there she is. And the, the, she got sucked into the Kate Kate's <laughs> vortex because like one time I was in a store and he was trying to find parking outside uh, and he wasn't having, it was like on Balboa Island in, in Newport. So it's like, there's no parking as you know. So he's just driving in circles. And so he got frustrated. He was like, forget it. Like, let's leave Balboa Island. So I'm in the store and I'm talking to the sales clerk and we're just chatting about different stuff. And then she said, well, you know, I'm from, uh, my family's originally from Mexico, but I was raised here. Well, does you, do your parents still live there? Well, my mother lives here now, but my father lives in Mexico, but I don't have a relationship with him. Oh, why is that? Well, my parents got divorced when I was really young and he decided to stay in Mexico. Well, how was that for you? Was that difficult for you? And then she starts to get emotional and she said, well, you know, I never told anybody this before, but my mother had a boyfriend for a long time that we all love very much. And my father, even though we had no relationship, found out about it. And he left Mexico, came to the United States, shot and killed my mother's boyfriend. And so I'm in the store and she's revealing this to me. And my husband keeps calling me on the cell phone and I'm not answering because how would one answer the phone after someone <laughs> revealed that? And so I ignored it. And then he shows up to the front door. He's like, I have been calling you. And how do I explain to him as he's standing in the doorway of the store? Well, she just told me about this horrible life experience. I can't, you know, like what an asshole I would be to answer the phone, right? Can you just hold one minute? Hi, hon. Oh, we have to go. Okay. Like, so that kind of like really kind of paints for you the picture of my life. I have those experiences all of the time. And then, of course, I'm leaving the store and I'm like, I don't want to leave because I want to know more. Like, <laughs> are you going to be OK? Do you need me? Um, so, I, you know, that's kind of like the story of my life. Um, but I think to some degree, my parents are like that, too. I mean, my mom, when we would go shopping as kids, she would get stuck at the grocery store forever. And she remembers people's names. And I have a photographic memory. So I remember my memory thing is I just remember details about people. Um, and then my dad has the same photographic memory, but his has to do more with like, he has a weird memory thing for history. And uh, this is pretty obscure, but like he knows every Catholic church in the country and I'm not kidding you. So if you were to say, I'm from Manassas, Virginia, he'd say, Oh, did you go to St. John uh, divine or did you go to St. Margaret's? And then you're like, wait, what? Um, and so I don't know, it's kind of like a weird thing. But for me, I just remember details about people. So like that girl in the store, I knew that by the time I was leaving, I knew the names of her siblings and the name of her mother and her father and the boyfriend that was killed and like all of that. So, you know, if I were to see her three years from now, I'd say, you know, how was your sister and how did it work out with your, your mom, Maria, and then your father, Jorge in Mexico. And then people look at you like you're crazy. Like, are you stalking me? And it's like, no, I just remember it. So <laughs> it's like a curse, curse in some ways too. Yeah. Well, I mean, you said about buttering people up and obviously, you know, as you explained, it, it's, 
it's two things like you said it's being willing to listen and then also being genuinely interested and i think that's the thing about you know what you're doing what i'm doing is you actually care when someone tells you how they're feeling or someone tells you their backstory and i think it's we're so bad in in general you know all of us when we're out there in, in the regular world even like when you walk past someone, how are you doing? And you don't wait for the response. You're, you're still walking. So you obviously right. don't care. But when you actually stop and engage, it's, it's absolutely incredible. A, like you said, how, how powerful that conversation is. But then these people that you've lived amongst forever, you realize like so many people have these incredibly powerful stories, but no one's ever really bothered to listen. One time I was watching this Oprah Winfrey episode. It was years ago. And she was sitting there and she was kind of had this epiphany while she was in the middle of the show. And she said, you know, I just kind of believe that every person has a story and that we all kind of have to take the time, you know, to figure out someone's story. And she points to somebody in the audience and she says, like you, like you must have a story. And like somehow this woman um, like ended up talking to the producers and they brought them back for another episode. And then she says, well, they showed this woman's personal story. She was like from Africa and she came to the States and she was studying and she's like, and this is my husband. Well, on the set of the Oprah show, she says to her husband, and I have something to tell you. And then they show her in a doctor's office and she's like, I'm pregnant with our first child. And everybody's like, oh my God. It was like the greatest story, right? <laughs> this like immigrant had come and blah, blah, blah. And it was like, I could, you know. I can imagine that there are so many people sitting around here who have equally interesting stories in their own right. So I could just kind of feel like the onus is on all of us to kind of figure out someone's personal story. Because I think that at a fundamental level, what everybody really wants, to, the common thread is that we all want to feel like we matter in this world and that we're heard. So just by encouraging others, the act of listening and asking questions, it, it's so healing for people. Like if you meet somebody, and especially the elderly, people kind of like look past the elderly, like they don't matter. And you just start talking to someone and listening to their life experience. Like we were taking a walk in the beginning of COVID around the neighborhood next to us with the kids. And there was this woman sitting on her uh, front, you know, front step and and we waved to her and she just started chatting with us. And it turned out that she was uh, from France and she was talking about how she had lived through World War II. Like she was very, very young. And we asked her, well, what's more difficult, you know, living through World War II or right now? And she said, oh, we're right now. Absolutely. I'm terrified if I get sick, I might die. And we don't really have any answers. You know, science doesn't have any answers. So, you know, I could was just walking past this woman's house and she may not have had a conversation with anybody in like weeks because her kids don't live there. She was all alone. Maybe the mailman stops by and says waves to her, but she just was hungry for conversation and for someone to ask her questions and for her to feel like she matters in the world. So, it's just like that kind of act. And, you know, what you do when you're talking to people who are in first responders, work in the fire department, the police department, those guys are and women are so full of stories. Like um, I did this one interview uh, with the director of this FX series called A Wilderness of Error. And it's about the Jeffrey McDonald case. He was a Green Beret during um, the 70s 
um, and at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. And he, he claimed that intruders came into his house and, and stabbed and murdered to death his, um, his wife and his two children. And she was pregnant. His wife was pregnant. So it's ultimately three children. So, um, I had interviewed him about the series. Oh, actually right before that, the, I was, I got, I interviewed a police officer right before I interviewed the director. So first I interviewed the police officer. So I told everybody that I was really interested in the case for many years and that I was going um, to be covering it. And two people wrote me one that said, I knew Jeff, I knew Jeffrey McDonald and my family did when I was very little. And the other person wrote me and said, Kate, my father was actually one of the first MPs, military officers at the scene of the crime. And I said, well, do you think he would talk to me? And she said, well, I can ask. So I did an interview with him. And so that pre that was before the FX director, because when I talked to the FX director, he was like, you talked to him. How the hell did you find him? But it was because a listener told me that that was her dad. So I interviewed him and he talked about what it was like for him to be witness to that crime. And he was only 19 years old and he was an MP. And he went on after that to become a New York City police detective for many, many years. And now he's retired. And his name is Bob. So he was telling me about what it was like to walk through the crime scene to see Jeffrey there. He was the one that opened the, or he walked down in the bedroom door where the first little daughter's body was in the crib. He went in and he saw the scene and the daughter's head was kind of facing the door, like her neck, you know, was kind of twisted almost. And it was, she was facing the door and how he never got over that sight and um, and how he carried tremendous guilt for many years, because after that, he became a New York City police detective. And he knew all too well that he probably had compromised the crime scene, as did the other MPs. They were just like kids. Right. And he just thought, oh, my God, I, you know, I, I had so many years of just going over that in my head. And he was a witness in the trial, which was like new, like a national story and still is. Um and then talking to him afterwards to ask, you know, about what happens after you're witness to something like that. Like, what about your own mental health? Like, how did you manage that? And did you get therapy for that? And, uh, and he said, you know, I have to tell you something. This is going to be the first time that a lot of my friends even know that I was witness to that crime because I haven't spoken about it. It's something that I kept to myself. And then the other officers, we don't ever talk to each other. The only time I've ever seen them was when we went to trial and we served as witnesses and one of the lead detectives lives on Long Island. So we live near each other, but we, we never speak about it. So for me, it's like the aftermath of a crime and what happens to the first responders and like what their life is like and how they factor into a crime scene and, and uh, how it affects their job like ultimately Bob says that that affected the way that he was a police officer in the, you know, in New York. Um, so anyway, I, I just find it all very, very fascinating. Well, that, that personal conversation, it's so interesting because we, we found ourselves, well, we don't have that conversation a lot. And, you know, so people are going when, you know, well, luckily when they, they have the realization, they go to counseling. But then you have these conversations. A number of times I've finished an interview and people have said, thank you so much. That felt like a counseling session. And it was just a human yeah. conversation. But like you said, one person was listening and letting the other person to really, you know, go down that journey and get things off their chest. And the firehouse 
dinner table has always been that place within a fire station in a good crew in a cohesive crew but with you know social media and you know social pressures to quote unquote be a man or you know whatever the the issues are we've got away from that so yeah i found the same thing and i'm sure you have when you have some of these these conversations the person you're talking to you know has a positive effect and and i tell people too like people ask me with this this project there's a big mental health element to it they're like well James, do you get counseling? And I said, yeah, three times a week. <laughs> I have these conversations. Yeah. And, you know, it sometimes it, it adds more load because these are some very heavy stories. But every time two humans sit down or more, sit down and have a truly engaging conversation, I think it is so healing for the soul. I feel like whenever something upsets me, talking it out is enormously helpful. Enormously helpful. So I agree with you. Absolutely. All right. Well, then getting to you know your podcast. So what were some of the, before we get to kind of some of the, the documentaries on, on your list, which I really want to explore, when you first started doing this, what were some of the elements that surprised you when you really got to explore some of these men and women that you had on the show? Um, like I said, the people that seek fame the most are the least interesting. I think it's humble people tend to have the most incredible stories. Um, you know, one of my favorite interviews was with, with Marcus Lamonas, who's a, a host of The Prophet on CNBC. And he's not a flashy person. He's like a he he appeals to blue collar America. He went to Marquette University, which he told me he purposely went to Marquette when he he was raised in Miami, adopted and raised in in a wealthy, pretty wealthy family in Miami. But he had purposely chosen Marquette at the suggestion of I think it was yeah I I think it was Lee Iacocca that told I mean he has a great story about Lee Iacocca anyway. But it may have been Lee told him or maybe his father, but somebody had suggested. Go to Marquette because it's really important to understand the way middle America thinks if you want a degree in business or a career in business. And that was pivotal because he went to Marquette and he, Lee Iacocca was a family friend and he walks into Lee Iacocca's house and he shows him this in his office. He's got like a timeline of uh, photos. So when he was a child and as he grew up and then at the end of it, it's like, you know, big success pictures. And he shows him, and at first he's like, okay, this guy's got like totally full of himself. And then Lee Iacocca says, this, this is my timeline. Marcus, what's yours? And he's like, shit, I got to get cracking. Like, I, what have I done for myself? Nothing. I have no success. So he goes to Marquette, and then he events, eventually ends up in investing and working in the RV market. And you're like RVs and camping. And his point was it's recession proof. And I mean, that's true today. Now people aren't taking these crazy vacations. They're renting an RV and driving across the country. So he's been enormously successful and you would think he would be flashy and obnoxious and he's actually quite the opposite. And so he's talking to me about um, his success and his life. And I had asked him about a special episode they had done because he found out that, um, through the process, I believe, of 23andMe, that even though he was born in Greece, was he was in a Greek orphanage and was adopted by a Greek family, that he was actually Syrian. So he found out about his biological parents, and it was just like this life-shifting moment. And so he talked about that, which was really impressive. 
But then he talked about growing up and being the victim of sexual abuse. And I never expected it to even like that. I didn't expect that to come out of somebody that successful, but most importantly by a man for a man to say I was abused as, as a young man and it had, it was detrimental in many ways. And, um, you know, this is what I've learned from the process and this is how I intend to help others through it. And I just found that to be a total surprise. And so it's like those kind of interviews that kind of keep the wind in my sails because I didn't expect that to come at all. And I just ended up finding out that this person is like such an inspiring guy and, you know, he talks on the profit about how businesses can sustain themselves or, or what they're doing wrong. And I just found him to be like the humanity. It was just such a, a lovely surprise. So um, I think those kind of stories um, and, and guests have been more interesting than the people that are at, in the shows that are the most popular of our day. Like, I got to tell you, the least interesting people always tend to be from The Bachelor because... <laughs> It's somebody who just really wanted something for real to get a job as a TV host. And so they've had limited life experience or business experience. And, you know, they've been kind of given sound bites by a network and they're not able to kind of express who they are. And on top of it, they're just not that interesting to begin with. So, you know, most of the people in the country get really fired up during the week when it comes, especially when they have the bachelor or bachelorette finale. But the truth is they're really not that interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting. The, the guy from the prophet, what was the response after you posted that? And, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of give you the reason. He why was my lovely. Question. He was lovely and totally promoted it. And we've kept in touch. Most people who are on the bigger shows, they will not promote your episodes. It's the the people that I've been the best guests have also been the best at promoting it. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because they're like, well, they feel like they have a deep like connection with me. But, you know, like another great guest was the one um, in Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Kobe Bryant's biographer. I asked him about the series The Last Dance on ESPN about the Bulls. Uh, final season, it was like the best docu-series of the year. And he was one of the greatest guests. And he's just a Southern man, which is a great storyteller. And you're hanging on every word. And I cried in that interview when he was talking about a moment between Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan. And, and he, you know, he's been so kind to promote that. And it's been so meaningful to me because then I'm like hoping to get, you know, people that are more sports lovers as I am define me. And, and so I don't know, I, I, they're, they're, they've been very kind in, in promoting those episodes. Beautiful. Well, the reason I ask is, I mean, I'm not exaggerating. I want to say about 25% of my guests, many of whom were men were sexually assaulted, um, you know, as children, sexually abused and or around, you know, violence, murder, drugs, I mean, horrific other childhood upbringings. And when I, you know, got a little bit deeper into this project, I was just amazed how many people had been hurt as children that now yeah. sought out this profession. So when I started publishing some of those conversations, the response spoke volumes as well. Like, you know, I've even to the point where I made a, I made it just, just threw together a kind of mental health PTSD video one time called, um, I wish my head could forget my eyes have seen. It was just a little, you know, to the, to a song that I put together, but there were 
you know, images and then, then, uh, uh, like flashcards, I guess, if you like on, on the, on the video of here's why you're feeling this way. Here's, you know, here's what this job is doing to you. Here's how you can, you know, so just, it was kind of like a self help thing and it got watched a million and a half times. And I was just I like, I believe it because I feel like people who have been the victim of emotional or sexual abuse are, you know, that's the really interesting thing about humans is that despite what's happened to them, there is this overwhelming need to heal others and to protect others. So it's not a surprise to me that people who are in uh, that work for a police department or who work for a fire department are are trying to heal what happened to them. That's like that's not surprising at all. Yeah. And I find it incredibly moving and profound and you know, I, we've talked about this personally, but, um, you know, I have all these connections to nine 11 and I, we, my husband and I, you know, really at my urging, once we had children, I said, I refuse to let nine 11 be a sad day. And it's all, you know, it's all about the deaths. I, I, I need the kids to understand because my own husband's father witnessed Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. He was a small boy and he was sitting in the hills watching all the planes in the sky and the bombs and the destruction. And I think about, thought about that. And then I thought about my own personal 9-11 experience. And I just said, well, we have a duty as parents to, to talk to them about the light holders, the people who bring hope and love on in the most difficult, like in the middle of the most difficult circumstances. So Every 9-11, I want us to bring cards and sweets and, and, and treats to the fire department and the police department in town and to go with them and to talk about what happened on 9-11 and talk about what the fire department and the police department did, not only on that day, but that they do every day. And so it's kind of like our little tradition. And it's been really sweet how other families have kind of taken that on, not just in our own town, but across the country, because... I think that people just forget about that day too, all too often and how brave all of those men and women were who showed up to save people. And we can't forget about that. That was the best of America in that one day and in that moment. And we have to hold those people up and use them as an example of like the greatest of humanity. So, um, you know, we can't forget, we can't forget those, those important things, much like my own father-in-law, who I never got to meet, but, you know, he was always very mindful of the importance of doctors and nurses and first responders because he witnessed people dying and it's just awful. And it could be do so much damage to a small child. I mean, I remember my, my younger niece, uh, she had done a school picture after 9-11 and it was of two people jumping from the building holding hands and you think like that is the impression that these young kids like that totally changes the rest of their life, much like the the way that school shootings has have affected my 18 year old niece. So like all the imagery is really uh, has a profound effect, much like my kids, they're going to be drawing and thinking about COVID for a long time. So the onus is really on us as parents and as pe- members of our own community to really be light holders for children. Yeah, you know this is very interesting. I'm just, I'm halfway through listening to Joe Rogan's interview with Kanye West, and you know it's it's interesting. It's not my favorite episode by any means, but he did actually say something that I thought was quite profound. He's like, when it's Black History Month, 
we keep showing images of slavery and oppression and you know the the riots and all these things and we're reinforcing that negative image and i'd mm-hmm. never thought of it that way but this is exactly what you're talking about with 9-11 too you don't forget yeah. but you know i think i don't know if you saw this but i saw a huge wave this year of i miss uh nine uh excuse me nine twelve the day after 9-11, when all the New Yorkers and a lot of the country were banding together, looking in ways yeah. to help. And I think that's the, it's the 9-12 we need to focus on, not the, you know, the event itself, but the fact that we as a nation or even as a world post, you know, 7-7, November 13th, whatever your country's disaster was, that was yeah. when we became more human than we have been in a long time. It was so, it's so hard to explain to people just how powerful the day after is and like how we were so united. One of my guests and actually is my sister's, one of my sister's best friends is uh, Matt Higgins. He's the, basically is the COO of the dolphins. But when he was younger, he is, he has a great personal story, but one of his first real job was as a press secretary for Rudy Giuliani. And one of his, you know, first few days of work was nine 11. So when you see George Bush on the pile of wreckage and he says to all of those men, you know, he's talking to them. They say, I can't hear you. We can't hear you. And he says, well, America can hear you. Matt was standing behind him. So he's really you should have him on to talk about that, that that special moment. Yeah, absolutely. If you're able to connect us, that would be amazing. He's great. So you mentioned that you had a powerful 9-11 story. So I'd love to hear that. So on 9-11, I was living in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I was married at the time to somebody who was an enlisted um, officer. And he was stationed off the coast of Bath, or Bath, uh, excuse me, Bath, England, on, um, on a ship. And he did a lot of the tech stuff on the ship, but he also had this job where if a pirate ship had been close to the destroyer, that he would be one of the teams that took like a little boat and kind of went over to investigate the other vessel. If you can imagine that. And it was because he had been a college water polo player. So they just figured, Oh, well, you know, since he's big and he knows how to swim, he'd be fine. So my, you know, my spouse at the time um, was on that boat. So he's out to sea and I'm watching live television that morning and saw obviously the coverage after the first plane hit and my sister had a job at world trade center seven so the building that was right next to it the umbrella building and she had reported back or told me later that when the first when the first plane had hit the uh world trade center what was it one that a lot of the people in the building had been working there years prior when there was another um attack And in that case, it was in the basement of the World Trade Center. So they were able to contain the fire right away. So they thought much like that, that time, they're going to contain it. And, you know, everyone's going to be fine. And, and so we can continue to work if you can believe it. So over the loudspeaker, they said a plane's, you know, hit and they were all going to leave. And then over the loudspeaker, they said, it's okay, you can go back to work. So there were lots of people that went back to work in World Trade Center 7 after the first plane hit. And so they start getting rattled, and then the second plane hits, and they're like, we have to get out of here. So 
My sister leaves the building, and as she's leaving, she's seeing people jump out of the buildings and actually hitting the ground. And she started walking all the way home. She called my brother-in-law from a payphone, if you can actually imagine a time where people use payphones. And he didn't even believe her. He was like, what are you talking about? He was working downtown. He's like, what are you talking about? So she's like, this is, it's really bad. It's really, really bad. So she continued to walk home. And she always says that in, in those kind of moments, you see the best and worst set of people, the worst and the best of people. So she's seen all of this horrible, this, just this horrible sight. So she sees people jumping from buildings, actually people hitting the ground. She sees people who have bloodied, you know, body, body parts walking. She felt like they all look like zombies, just walking in a herd. But then there was a, a man who owned a sneaker store and came outside and said, um, to the women, like, here's some shoes. So if you had high heels and you were walking for blocks and blocks and blocks that he would, ju- he just was passing out shoes to people, his inventory. There was another person that had a restaurant that was coming out and giving them bottled water and, and warm towels to wipe their faces. And also people in buildings were opening their windows if they could get uh, like a phone connection. Because if you called anybody that was around that area, you couldn't get through. I mean, I called my sister, I don't know, hundreds of times. And so there were people that had reached out their windows and said, come up, come up, use the phone, use the phone. So as my sister's experiencing this and she, I can't contact her, I'm at home in Virginia Beach. I'm there by myself and I see, you know, what's going on live television and I can't get in touch with my sister. All I know, she's right there in like in one of those buildings. So it was an enormously difficult day to say the least. And then finally I was able to reach her late into the evening and it was an enormous relief. Well, after that, um, the next day, I believe they started to show the photos of the terrorists on the news and they, uh, Muhammad Atta was the first one they showed. So he was in the first plane and I immediately recognized his face because, and I think I already mentioned it, but I have a photographic memory. So at the time of, I was living in Virginia beach, there was this little mail depot across the street where I would go to mail packages and, you know, not like a UPS store, but just like a mom and pop kind of shop. And I remembered going to one of going one day to the, to the mail depot. And I remembered seeing him. So I ended up, uh, so I, I thought about it. I thought about it. Um, and I ended up later on calling and reporting it to the FBI. So it's months and months and months later, and there was a news report on the television that Mohammed Atta had been in Virginia Beach and had been staying at a hotel about, I don't know, a quarter of a mile, half a mile down the street from where I lived and had been apparently casing the military bases in Virginia Beach and Norfolk. I lived at the time near the amphibious base, but um, the, he had also apparently been looking at the Norfolk base. So God only knows what was part of their plan. And I don't know if that has ever been revealed what that plan was, but apparently that was on their list of objectives that day was to also, or in that time period, was to harm our military bases. So um, 
it was years and years later I did just did an interview this past year that I'm very proud of with the author Garrett Graff who wrote a book I can't cannot say enough about it's called The Only Plane in the Sky The Oral History of 9-11 and it's based on an article he wrote for Politico which is at this point the most downloaded article in its history in the politico.com's history and it's about how President Bush's plane was the last plane in the sky on 9-11. And so he, Gareth went through the day of 9-11 and got insight from people from all walks of life who were in, it's like touched by 9-11. So the air traffic controllers and the people who worked in the buildings and people who looked at worked at the Pentagon, et cetera. And so he kind of just goes through the day of it and a lot of people have told me it's actually a really interesting audiobook uh, listen, but I read it and I immediately interviewed him and I got a chance to talk to him about his book. But uh, I mentioned, you know, what I had experienced on 9-11. And in the process before prepping for that interview, I Googled like Virginia Beach, Muhammad Atta, and there was an article that said that a tip had come in on April 3rd about Muhammad Atta. And that basically, that's how they were able to track down the plan for the military bases. So that that tip was mine. This was the day before my birthday. Um, so that's like another weird connection. And then the other thing is that my college friend, my one of my best friend's boyfriends, was a first responder at the Pentagon. So... Uh, I have spoken to him about that experience and hope to do a project with him. Um, But he also said something very similar to what you will read in Gareth's book, book because Gareth talks about how the odd thing about the Pentagon was they had just gone through a renovation at that, in that part of the Pentagon and it's called the wedge. And so surprisingly the part that the plane hit had hit, a, a part where they had renovated it and they had done all this uh, bulletproof glass and bombproof glass. Um, so the plane, as you know, kind of nose dived into it. So there was damage. Yes. A considerable amount of damage, but not nearly as much as it would have happened had it been, you know, pre renovation. And as he explained it, interviewing people who worked in the Pentagon and the wedge at that time was that, um, a lot of the deaths occurred because of fireballs. So it could mean that somebody's life or death was based on if they were like, if they walked out of a conference room and if they went left, there was a fireball, they died. If they went right, they missed the fireball. So it's just, it's just so odd when you get down to the the details of after what happened after that plane hit. And, but what Joe had said to me was that it was very odd how, I mean, the carnage is just awful, but it was almost like you would look to the left and there would be a cubicle with someone's breakfast out and a picture frame with their family as if they had just left to go to the bathroom. And then to your right, you see a desk and a computer and it all had been melted because of the heat. So um, he unfortunately has spent quite a bit of time um, in therapy or fortunately in therapy, the PTSD combined with his time in, you know, serving abroad has been quite difficult. But when I think of 9-11, I obviously think of all of the officers and, um, you know, the the fire department and the police department. But I'm also very mindful of those members of the 
military who were first responders and the people who worked in the Pentagon that day. And, and of course, I also had friends that worked at the Capitol and around the Capitol and how they heard the sound of the planes coming and that they all thought the planes were going to nosedive into the Capitol. So there was this mass exodus of people who worked in the Capitol running, running on the ground, screaming, if you could imagine that. Um, and just that, that, that loud sound in the city, like a lot of people never got a chance to kind of get over it. It is surprising to me all these years later that there are, I mean, Gareth even mentions this is that this was a time before, you know, we had cell phones. Imagine if that happened now, we would have so many photos of the planes going into the Pentagon, plane going into the Pentagon or the destruction and all that. And there wasn't any of that. So people who were driving on 395 saw the plane go down and it's like a snapshot in their own mind, but there's no like photographic proof of it anywhere, which is surprising if you think about it. So the Naude brothers, it's incredible that they got the footage of the first plane going into the building because there are only three pieces of um, video proof of the the plane going in. And I suspect that's probably why a lot of these conspiracy therapists have, or conspiracy, conspiracy theorists have lost their minds about 9-11 or had lost their minds about it, but because there was so little video and photographic proof. But I mean, the people that experienced it would say the opposite. So the net net is 9-11 is just a very, very weird day in the in my life. And I feel definitely connected to it um, because of it. Yeah. Well, firstly, that Freudian slip, I think, is a great idea. Anyone out there is looking for a new profession. I think conspiracy <laughs> therapists would be a great way to go. <laughs> so all the people that need that. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine somebody like, what is it, Alex? What's his face? Alex, another one. Jones. Alex Jones yes. telling people that like none of this really happened. I mean, it's just such a, well, the, uh, how could someone operate that way? I don't know. So I did a, a video. I, think, I can't remember if we discussed it before or not, but it, a very long story short, made a video on, on mental health, got watched, you know, one and a half million times. And one of the images in there is from the Sandy Hook shooting. And I'm actually hoping to get a, uh, a police oh officer from there. But, you know, there's, there's as you know, most of the people either just enjoy watching it, don't say anything, give it a thumbs up, and it's usually the squeaky wheels that will take the time to comment. And the number of Sandy, yeah, great video apart from the hoax at Sandy Hook, and I'm like, you know, why? Like, even if just 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 take a step back, what would be the reason to stage an elementary school massacre? Like, if if you wake up in the morning and that's that's your belief, then maybe you know you need to do some reprogramming. I would think so. And I recommend that documentary on Sandy Hook. Did you see it? I did. It's really, really good. Yeah, heartbreaking. Yeah. Did you ever see the documentary on Columbine? Um, well, there's two. There's one about Columbine, but then there's another one that I just watched. It's called American Tragedy. And it's the sto- really pretty much the story of Sue Klebold, who's the mother of Dylan Klebold. So there were two boys on Columbine. There was Dylan Harris and there was Dylan Klebold. They were the trench coat mafia. That's what they were called. And Sue explains what it's like to be the mother of a shooter. And I think it's a really important, extremely valuable message for all parents to listen to what she has to say. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's been it's been a theme. I'm actually going to have some of the guys from um, the uh, the shooting we had down South Florida here, um, Parkland. 
Um, oh, yeah. Because again, when you watch, they did a, a few of the firefighters and chiefs did a presentation that was heartbreaking because this was now obviously a lot more recent. So they had surveillance footage, they had the dispatch, um, you know, audio, they had all these things put together and they had this little kind of animation of these these dots, you know, one was a shooter, all the other ones were kids and teachers. And if it turned, you know, a certain color, they were injured. If it turned another color, they were killed. And all these veteran hardened firefighters that were watching this presentation were all just in tears. But, you know, that's, a, that's a, another theme that I talk about a lot here. And there's been a, there's a gentleman, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, who's, um, army ranger and like a, the, one of the most known psychologists within the army specifically. And he had a book, Assassination Generation, and it really kind of unpacks a lot of the, the issues that attribute to it. You know, whether it's the first person shooter training that the military and law enforcement use, it also is, you know, a gamer thing. Um, you know, the, obviously the psychosis from, you know, mental health issues, but even sleep deprivation. I never thought of this. Mm-hmm. He was one of the first people, I think, that said, oh, video games cause these and people kind of roll their eyes, myself included. I, you know, I, I didn't see the connection when I was younger. But then when you think about a gamer, especially today, not only are they having that desensitization and being rewarded for killing in their little video game, but they're also not sleeping. So add all these, you know, compound that with someone who's got social issues, who he's being bullied, who maybe is on psych meds, and you put all these things together. Now you have that perfect storm. Wow. And which sounds like the shooter in Sandy Hook, totally. That really kind of encapsulates what he was like. What do you think about the shooter in Las Vegas? Now, let me ask you a question back because my perception is I don't know because it seems like so, I mean look at COVID. We we've had 24 hour f- you know coverage of the COVID incident for almost a full year. We've had a little death counter, you know, on every single news station just showing us more deaths, more deaths, more deaths or now more exposures, more cases whatever it is. To me, and that might be just because I am kind of unplugged, it seemed like we had all this news footage of it for just a few days, and then it just went away. So I don't understand it. That is the question that tugs at me all the time. It's almost like they received information, and then they were like, we got, you know, like, close it up. I almost wondered, and I feel like a conspiracy therapist theorist (laughs) uh, right now, but I mean... There are people that have wondered, was it an inside job? And is that why that they just stopped talking about it? But it does seem very odd. Yeah. I mean, it just doesn't seem to be like all the other ones. I mean, look at the one we just had in in Nashville, you know? I mean, again, completely bizarre, but it seemed like that was almost a cry for help. Like that that man put out a warning saying, everyone leave. No, but he was obviously not a complete maniac because he didn't try and murder a bunch of people i mean he did set off a bomb obviously but he had a 15 minute warning hopefully that would be followed by an evacuation that would just destroy i'm assuming at&t if it was based on 5g but yeah the vegas shooting you know i mean that was such a horrific death toll and i know a lot of people that were there i think one of my one of the members of anaheim since i i left one of dickie's uh, co-workers I, i think was shot so that's uh, right. And one of my husband's employees was there with his wife. They got out okay. Um, but, I mean, there's so many people in Southern California that were affected. But, you know, I just found that one to be perplexing. And then also no one in his life seemed to speak up at all. It's like they were shut down. 
No one did any interviews. Typically, when, when something like that happens, you do extensive interviews with like an ex-girlfriend, an ex-spouse, sisters, brothers. And it was like, no one talked. I could never figure that out. I thought that was odd. And I, just to your point also, people need to pay attention when somebody um, warns. Like, warnings are big. Like, when I was a 17-year-old in high school, my my boyfriend, who had graduated the year before me, I went to a boarding school in Hershey, Pennsylvania, um, and he was suffering with mental illness. And he called and to, and told me, you know, sometimes I just don't feel like um, I can make it anymore. Like, I just want to kill myself. And, you know, I just was like, oh, you know, I said, I just don't, I, I don't know why you would think that you're so loved, you know, but I was trying to get him off the phone, to be quite honest with you, because he was really emotionally very um, abusive. But he had gone back to his uh, friends in Florida and had said the same thing, too. And they blew it off. They're like, oh, whatever. And then he ended up hanging himself. And at a, at a, they found his body at an elementary school right before the kids showed up. Really? So, I mean, people have to pay attention when someone says, I feel like I might do this. You kind of really, like, listen to it. You know? Like, normal people don't say things like that. No. And then that's just it. I've had this conversation with a couple of people recently. We need to be present full stop. We need to be present, like you said, as, as a warning, you know, as, as I know it's Monday morning quarterbacking now, but you are a, you know, a, a guest in a hotel and you have trunk after trunk after trunk going up to your right. room, you know, I mean, you, there's just, there's, there's those things. So you, the sheepdog in your community, you know, you, um, but then you have that same thing as a friend and, you know, my profession, we lose so many people, you know, we we lose more people to suicide than we do for what we call line of duty deaths, which is, you know, you get killed in the fire, a car crash. And another scary thing is we lose more people through gun violence, self-inflicted than we do murder. And I don't think people realize that either. So more people shoot themselves than are killed with a gun, if that makes sense, by someone else. So Mm -hmm. yeah, with the suicide is such a huge thing. I think the ripple effect of what we're, we've experienced this year is is really going to, you know, is, we're going to see it for the next few years, I'm afraid. And so being present, being, as you said, present in, in your family's life so that someone feels love, being present so you can be aware of a danger and being present so that if someone's hurting, you're there, you're, you're able to reach out because you don't want to be the person that rolled their eyes because someone was crying and then the next thing they jump off a bridge. Right, right. So true. Again, I really wonder what happened to the with that shooter in Las Vegas, and I I do think about the people that were at that concert day quite a bit. And it just it's it's just an unimaginable. It is unimaginable. But it's how can we figure out what happened? I don't know. I got to find this one of my psychic friends. I got to ask them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm going to keep you know, pursuing that because that's obviously one of the stories that I want to tell. Actually, someone yeah. someone just told me, and it was completely unrelated, but I just had a uh, a man, Stephen Sashin, who is the founder of Zero Shoes. So it's like a minimalist, you know, footwear company, and he told me an interesting anecdote. He said that the cop that actually ran down the shooter um, initially had boots on, and he just couldn't catch him. So he threw off his his clumpy boots and actually chased him down barefoot. So there are little people out there, you know, that that hopefully one day we're going to be able to get hold of because I know gag orders and things happen. That's why I did a big pulse week 
Um, but yeah, if we don't tell the story, mm-hmm. we can't learn from it either. And we, and we can't prevent another one happening. Okay. One last question I have about this is the fact that he had taken one of the rifles and broken the glass. Why didn't they have some sort of alarm system in their hotel that would signal that there was a break in the glass? Yeah, that's a very good question. I don't know of any, I can't, I don't know if I've ever seen any kind of system like that. And I think the problem was as well, I don't know if he cased it out to where maybe there, there weren't, you know, there were vacant rooms around it, but I can't see that being the case. But I mean, he was so high up, but sadly, I don't think anyone would be able to tell from the ground either. But um, that's a very good point. I mean, if if you're if you're literally breaking, breaching what we call it in the fire service part of the building, you know, you you would wonder if there was some sort of kind of vibration system that would be able to alert people to to that happening. And even if there was someone not in the room next door, even what about above or below the sound of glass shattering? From I mean, why wouldn't why didn't anybody else notice it just it all seems very very odd yeah yeah well it's going to just not pulling away from vegas um permanently but just for um a lateral move for a second the other thing that i question and again this isn't conspiracy theory this is to me a really awful decision that the military would have to make but i can't help but wonder if uh was it was it 93 that was that was uh grounded in um 9-11 if that was yes, shot it down was. I, I just think if it was heading towards the White House and they knew that all the other planes, people had died anyway, that it was kind of like a collateral damage decision. Well, the only thing is that the audio tapes, I mean, I have like read every single thing about 9-11, I swear, but the audio tapes of, and you can hear the flight attendants, they said, oh God, the plane's going down. So... It, they it kind of went left, it went right, and then they were saying it went down. So if it was shot down, would they have necessarily? And then oh, there were by there were people nearby in that spot in Pennsylvania, and they said that they saw the plane nose diving. Gotcha. Okay. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, wait, there was one other one I was going to ask you about. Wait, remind me. I, I just lost my train of thought. So wait, let, it was about um, Shanksville before you said Shanksville. Oh, shoot. I'm going to forget it. And now I'm going to sleep with one eye open. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, man. What was it? Crap. I forget now. Um, Take your time because I'm going to cut this bit out. So no rush. Darn it. What was I saying? What were we talking before that? So we're talking about, um, yeah, obviously Vegas. And then um, before that was Sandy Hook. We talked about Nashville planes going down i forget oh did you watch the new doc doc um you your listeners need to do all listen or watch the new or what's relatively new hbo doc uh, the mystery of db cooper about the man that hijacked the plane in 1971 and then parachuted out of the plane and no one knows what happened to him I saw that you were about to watch that on your social media the other day, and I'd heard, I forget who it was, I'd heard someone else talking about it. They never found him, did they? They never did, and they present to you four people that it's a possibility. Only one of them seems likely likely to me, but it seems like the other ones, it's a, a matter of people, and I'm sure this happens a lot, They they wanted, they wanted to 
they wanted to be connected somehow to that. So they made up some cockamamie story for their relatives, like, oh, you know, I am D.B. Cooper. And then th- those people really believed it, too. Um, I don't know if there's any validity to what they're saying. There's one person that I kind of think, well, that's a possibility. But remarkable that someone could have hijacked a plane in 1971 and and jumped out of it. Like the whole series, like this whole story, the series of circumstances that led up to it. In the year 2020, 2021, you're like, how in the world were flight attendants such idiots? Yeah, and, it, and like, it was like a, a passenger plane, wasn't it? So, you know, when you think yeah. of people skydiving, they're leaping out of a plane that's designed to skydive. Whereas if you think of someone trying to leap out of a passenger plane, you think of them it going so fast and them getting sucked into the engine or, you know, it's not designed yeah. to leap out of. Oh, I know what I was going to tell you. When I lived in Virginia Beach, so I lived... Um, my best friend to this day was my neighbor and she was a Naval Academy grad. Um, and I think I mentioned to her before, but one of the things I remember was, and I don't know if you're going to remember this, but there was a time where there was an American plane, like a military plane that ended up landing in China. And so the Chinese government took over the plane and then the Americans were eventually released like two, two or three days later. And the American media like called them heroes, basically welcoming welcoming them back, but particularly the pilot of that plane. Like, thank God they're okay. They're American military heroes. And my friends who went to the Naval Academy were like, "That guy is a traitor." And I, you know, as an outsider, someone not in the military, like, what do you mean? Like, they're alive? No, like, they just gave our, an American plane over to the Chinese. And my friend said he should have nosedived that plane right into the ground and just killed everybody and take and you know and had the plane blow up in the process i was like what and she's like no that's what you learn when you're in the military like at, at no cost do you ever let a foreign uh enemy get access to military information no way they should have all died in the plane i was just like wow this is why i think about to that all, all the time like that's why i could never be in the military i'm not that ballsy I say that to my husband all the time. I'm like, I do not have the balls to be in the military. And he's like, yeah, you're probably right. But I could not imagine that if you're on a plane and you know that the Chinese are going to get access and you're like, fuck it. And you just blow up the plane. Like, how many people actually have the balls to do that? Yeah. Well, it's like, you like, know, we're, these- like, we're all going down, guys. Just we're, you know, this is what we sign up for. Sayonara. It's like unbelievable. Yeah. No, it is. It's such a different mindset. It's like these, you know, men and women that get caught and captured and um, and tortured. I mean, you know, and, and they they don't give up. And some of them are in these places for years being tortured, and they never they never never uh, give up. John McCain yeah. never gave up any information. Never did. Like, oh my gosh! I mean, what uh, what a hero! And then my daughter, I named her after Amelia Earhart because I was totally fascinated by Amelia Earhart as a child. And I watched this incredible documentary on Discovery Channel. And some someone sa- said to me, well, I don't know if it's all that true, but it was pretty compelling because there's this photo that a man who had worked in the archives had been retired, but somehow got access. I think he stole the, the photo, but it is a photo of a, a Japanese warship and it looks like it's pulling an American plane, you know, behind. And you see a woman at the end of the pier just from the side. And it looks exactly like Amelia Earhart. 
And also in that photo, standing by a tree, I believe, it looks to be exactly like Fred Noonan. It was her, the co-pilot, when her plane disappeared. And so this, this, in this documentary, they go back to Japan, and there's reason to believe that she had been actually, the plane had actually crashed on an island off the coast of Japan, and that they, she was taken as a prisoner of war, and was there were accounts of these Japanese that were like, we saw her there, but she, they were almost like confused by her because she almost looked like a man, like very androgynous look. And they, that the Japanese thought she was a spy and that she, she was tortured a bit and that they say that she died of malnutrition. So in the documentary, they're trying to like go find her bones, but they come up short. But I don't know. I'm like, I think that could have possibly happened. But the, the problem was, it was like the Japanese, the Americans were trying to, at that point when the story kind of came up a bit, um, they were trying to kind of squelch the story because they were trying to build this new friendship between Japan and America. So it's like this whole story of her disappearing and we'll never know it. They claim that there's this whole other thing that happened, but the Americans couldn't handle to hear the truth. Yeah, that's absolutely crazy. I mean, speaking of uh, powerful documentaries, did you see, was it the, the falling man? The one where they try to figure work out who that one figure was that was falling from the world trade center and they look completely relaxed. Oh my God, no, but tell me more. Oh my goodness. Uh, there's, there's a couple of that, and then I think it's Man on the Wire about the guy that did the tightrope between the two towers years before. Um, another powerful one, but yeah, so, and, the, and they figured it out in the end, pretty much, you know. But yeah, this whole thing is, is they're just, they're trying to, there's this one iconic photo, but the, the crazy thing is he just looks so relaxed. He or she initially, they have no, no idea what, you know. Um, who it is but as they slowly kind of work through the documentary they start eliminating people they start figuring out you know which floor they probably jump from and in the end oh based God. on who survives and all that stuff yeah they, they figure it out you know that they think they figured it out at least but just the stories around you know as they're as they're digging in and all these different accounts and eventually you learn about this person and then people tell you you know who they were, what an amazing person they were. But yeah, another, another, just completely different perspective on that horrific day. Oh my god! Now, if I watch that, will I cry my face off? Absolutely. Holy crap! Yeah, and you just—I don't have balls. I don't have balls. <laughs> but it's—it's it's not balls, though. You know, I mean. Tell me that you don't think about nine eleven every time you don't get on. Excuse me, every time that you get on a plane. Every time I get on a plane, I think if the plane was was to be hijacked, would I get up and would I fight? Who would I be in that moment? Would I be comforting the mothers and the children? Would I be helping the people that were attacking? Like, what would my role be? I think about that all the time. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because when, you know, growing up in England, we had the IRA. So we were being bombed on the mainland. Um, and I've talked about this a few times. I grew up next to a military base. So we literally would sweep under our cars to make sure we didn't have any bombs. Um, and then we, there was a lot of hijackings. And I don't know if it made a lot of the news here, but there's a lot of Middle Eastern hijackers, um, that, you know, that would take over a plane from, from Germany, from, you know, wherever. So, you know, and there were bombs on there and sometimes the bombs went off. So I used to think about it as a small child, not, not like, you know, be obsessed with it. But when 9-11 happened, that element of taking a plane, 
wasn't new. It was just the element of actually taking that plane into a building that was so awful. So uh, to me, it's not so much being on a plane. It's actually, you know, as, as those poor people in, in the buildings going about your business and all of a sudden, you know, as you see in, in Jules and Gideon's um, film, you know, you're going from doing the accounting to dead. So that, I mean, that's just so horrific that you know, any, and we see this in our profession all the time that there's just, you can't tell when your time is your time. So it's funny you say the IRA because, you know, you're familiar with this, uh, Alec Baldwin's wife, Ilaria, uh, apparently like uh, exaggerated being from Spain like has this accent and she's actually from Boston. Like it's a whole thing. Okay. Um, I, and I've been laughing for the last week because my father's the original Alaria Baldwin, because he's been pretending to be an Irishman for about 15 plus years. <laughs> I, I did not have a relationship with him as a child. My sister tracks him down when I was like 33 years old. And we were very surprised to hear that he is a very thick brogue. And he now goes by the name Liam. His not, name is William Paul and was Paul his whole life, but now goes by Liam. But one of the things, in addition to the strange brogue, is that he, he, he tells people, including his ex-girlfriend, he told her that he was very involved in the Irish peace process and had met with tons of people and he was in support of the IRA. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, it's totally made up, crazy town, nutbagville. He was telling my husband, I just like, it was kind of earlier in our relationship, we had only one child, and he was telling him how he had gone to boarding school in Galway, Ireland. I was like, you went to Great Valley High School in Melbourne, Pennsylvania. <laughs> I saw your track picture in your yearbook because I made my mom drive down to get proof of it. Like, what are you talking? Like, you know, you didn't. But the worst part was he, we were at my sister's house and he put some like disc into the computer and it was... A documentary. I, I, I mean, I'm afraid to find the documentary, but it exists. But you, my father's in the documentary telling the story about being in a bell tower when it was bombed. And Bono is narrating the, the documentary. And so my husband's just sweet. So he's asking, he's like, so you were in the bell tower? And he's like, that's just Hollywood. And I said, it's a documentary. Why <laughs> did you participate? Like with his fake broke. So little did these people know that this like total cum had been faking that he like he's this Irishman who was part of this like moment in Irish history. It's like so embarrassing. It's crazy. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> God, I go off on a tangent or what? <laughs> well, one more thing I want to touch on um, before we kind of go to the next part is you also mentioned the fireball in the Pentagon. And I think that was a a very powerful thing. And your interview with the Norday brothers really made me uh, listen again because I totally missed that. But when they had the, the crews entered the first tower that was hit um, and, and I heard you asking the brothers about this, they went in and there were people on fire in the lobby when they walked in and, and they deliberately yeah. didn't film it because, you know, they're, they're, you know, compassionate men. But again, the, the, the firefighters were, amazed that you know the, all the the floors above were kind of untouched but a fireball had come the jet fuel had come down all the way down the elevator shafts right. and basically blown the entire ground floor out and that was all stuck with me too is this idea that there are there's a plane in the top floors it's burning the steel is burning 
people are crippled with fear trying to get downstairs, that the elevator shaft is a big fireball, and that there's still music playing on the bottom floors. The shops are open, people are walking around, and they have no idea that it's, you know, T minus one hour, if not less, before they could all be dead. It's just so, it's just wacky. It is just absolutely wacky. Much like in, in ter- the French case where people are just going to a cafe at night and little do they know what's about to happen to them. Yeah, no, exactly. It's wild. It is. And then what you said about being told to, to go back to work, we have a thing called shelter in place. So if you have a large, supposedly, you know, very, very fire resistant structure, the safest thing is to do that and let the crews put out the fire wherever it is. And that way you're not clogging up the, the stairwells and you're allowing the people to get up there and extricate the people that were hurt. They were actually in that area. But with um, the World Trade Center and also with the Grenfell Tower in London, yeah, the, the structure didn't act the way that all the other structures that are similar to that had before. And obviously a plane is a different thing. But, you know, the, they focus on the fireproof cladding, for example, in the World Trade Center and definitely the exterior cladding they put in Grenfell. And it's so sad because what they were told to do is exactly what, you know, thousands of thousands of residents have been told in similar situations over and over and over again. But in these oh. two tragedies, the building didn't behave the way it was supposed to. Oh, my God. It's too much. It's just too much. It's insane. It is. I, I don't know. Too much. Beautiful. Well, I want to transition a little bit to the world that you know that you inhabit now. So when a lot of people hear reality TV, I know myself included, I kind of have two two thoughts in my head. There's there's you know the what I would consider more of a true reality TV, like The Deadliest Catch, where you just, you know, you're filming what's actually happening. And then you have Tow Wars, which one of my fire crews actually thought was real, where you've got, it's almost like a comedy skit show where they're setting up these scenarios where people are being towed and doing these most ridiculous things. So what, tell me what, you know, through your eyes, what the landscape is of reality TV, because I know you talk about unscripted. Well, um, there was a time where reality competition shows really took over the, you know, like who wants to marry a millionaire survivor certainly was part of that. Um, so many people were obsessed with these reality competition shows, the bachelor. And then there was the next kind of chapter of it, which was the real housewives. And there were many reiterations of that kind of art, that kind of template, which is like, excessive wealth and we're a window into their lives. So like celebrities and their lives, this is this idea that we're peeking into the world of people who have more money than they can count and what that life is like. And now we're seeing that change that I mentioned afterward, which is people are, if it's a reality show, they like reality shows that are competitive shows that have grit, like the, um, the Amazon's eco challenge. So you see people who have enormously interesting personal stories, like the the gentleman who was an elite athlete and his father, who was also an elite athlete, was suffering from Alzheimer's the early stages and decided to compete with him. And it's a race against uh, across Fiji and all, through all this terrain. 
Um, people like stuff like that and they like docu-series. They like five or six episodes of an, like an improbable story or a true crime case, something that has to do with like true crime or personal like triumph over tragedy. People are really interested in that. And then in terms of documentaries, people are like, they want to know about his, like a moment in history or um, like some sort of movement. So that's kind of where we are in the spectrum now. So I'm not, I'm not sure yet what the next one is going to be because we're kind of in the beginning of this third wave. Um, but people are, I'm glad to tell you rejecting sort of the fake stories and setups and people that are just using a show to get famous. That's those days are kind of over, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think, um, you know, like the kind of dog, but the bounty hunter and some of those other bounty hunter shows, you know, I mean, you could just tell like, I've seen when people are being chased, they don't just <laughs> kind of wrestle with right. you and then get cuffed. They will stab you in you, the face. So <laughs> you'd also mention deadliest catch. I interviewed Nick McGlash and he just died on Sunday. He's I one saw of that. like 10 different people from the deadliest catch that have died. And I'm not surprised because Nick, as he explained it to me is that the job that they had, was just so depressing. Like you're in the middle of nowhere the the water's super dark it's freezing cold it's all men and all those men are from places that are bleak too they're all basically depressed together there are no women around it's all very like doggity dog um and they all a lot of them had addiction issues so they were in different phases of recovery and uh, you know, it's just very, it would be very, a very hard life. So I liked him because he was just really outspoken about mental health and, and the toll that it takes to be on a boat like that. Um, but I'm I'm so sad to hear that news because I think he could have had a really cool and interesting second or third chapter. Yeah. And you think it was an OD or suicide? Unfortunately, probably. Yeah. Well, and then I wonder again with that, you know, how many of those men, if you actually got to sit down and have an honest conversation with them, how many of them had trauma and there was an element of uh, of escapism basically of working the ships, the boats? Oh, absolutely. I'm not I'm I'm not even flinching as you say that. I'm sure of it. Yeah. So sad. Well, with with the landscape of um not just uh, you know, docuseries but also documentaries, I think one of the good things that's come out of this, the weird and the wonderful, um, this last year are some incredibly powerful, you know, T V shows and T V movies. Um, so the the one on everyone's lips though, when we think about COVID, the one that seemed to kick it off at the beginning and you couldn't have had better timing if you were a, a TV maker than than the COVID crisis. I think with the Netflix stuff. Um, but Tiger King, did you ever have any guests or ever ever talk about? Oh, that I one? had a great one. I had a great one. Yeah, he was the first reporter that had kind of done an expose on Tiger King and had spent a week on the premises, so he knew all the players. He did it way before everybody else, and then he was the one that created the podcast that Wondery had about tiger king so he knew where all the bodies were buried and i had him on so it was like behind the scenes of tiger king but sometimes my problem is that i'm almost like too ahead of everybody 
So I'll interview people and I'm like, you guys, this is the next best thing. And they're like, what? And then three weeks, two or three weeks later, they're like, oh my God, the Tiger King. I'm like, I know. Remember two or three <laughs> weeks ago when I had the guy on? Um, so that's kind of the problem. But yeah, that was a great episode too. I, I mean, I, the problem too with that is that I kind of am over it. You know, by the time people kind of catch on and then that's all they're talking about. I'm like, I, oh guys, I've like moved on to the next thing. Yeah. So the next thing was don't fuck with cats. Yeah. That one I got over quickly too. <laughs> that one annoyed me quite a bit. Um, yeah, that, that one, I don't think I interviewed anybody from that. I think I just kind of talked about it. Yeah, that was, uh, that was crazy. So, so what, um, with, with that genre, you know, why, why do you think those were so popular? Cause it wasn't, it was a very different kind of show than I think what most of us have been watching up to that point. Um, I think that it appealed to people because it showed people that are of a certain income level and people are just tired of shows about people who have a lot of money. Um, It was refreshing to see people in a different part of the country too. Like they weren't from, you know, it wasn't from the West or East coast. It's somewhere in the middle of America. That's appealing and different. It was the beginning of COVID and you could get sucked into it and binge it. I mean, network television is sort of in the dark ages, the way that they have an episode and then you have to wait another week for another episode. Truly, people like streaming media more because they want to be at home and they want to watch three or four episodes in one sitting. They don't have the patience to wait anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with um, the list that you put together, you sent me your uh, your reality life kind of favorite, docuseries favorites. There's a yeah. few there on on the other side, so you know, not not Tiger King esque. Um, the uh, uh, I'm just pulling it up now. Where is it? Khalif Browder story was was one um, mm-hmm. that I thought was incredible. I just talked about I just talked about that the other day because there's this story now that Massimo Giannoli is in solitary confinement, and I was telling somebody that Khalif's brother explained to me that when you're in solitary confinement, which by the way is totally barbaric, that people tend to develop multiple personality disorders. So I keep thinking about that when I see coverage of that, like, yeah, he did do something terrible, but does he deserve to have, you know, these mental health problems now because he was put in solitary confinement? I don't think so. Yeah. And who is that that you're referring to? Massimo Giannoli is the husband of Lori Laughlin, and they were part of the Varsity Blues scandal where they paid um, uh, an outside consultant to get their children's spots into USC. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not like you were murdering people. No, and he's going to probably have irreparable damage to his mental health. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's something that's come up a lot, and I've had prison governors from different countries too. You know, we've we've been doing this style of of uh, prison quote unquote reform for a long time, and you know we have to look at the the statistics. Like our our numbers mm-hmm. are swelling and swelling and swelling. So it's absolutely one area I think that we need to revisit, and not only for the prisoners, but the for the poor men and women that have to work in the prisons too. Yes, I agree. Yeah. So, what are some of the other favorites that you have on your list? Um, there's another one on HBO called murder on middle beach. And that is about uh, a young man whose mother was murdered on the, uh, in her front yard, uh, in two, 2010. And he becomes a filmmaker and he goes back to find a figure out what happened to her. And he uncovers that she was part of this weird MLM called the gifting tables, which is 
you got to just watch it to understand it. It's bonkers. And the story of his father and how they had been going through a divorce and they had a court date that morning and had she uncovered that maybe he wasn't so honest in his business dealings. There's a lot to unpack in four episodes because there are other family members where you're scratching your head going, maybe it was them. So I think for people who love true crime, that's a fantastic one too. Um, let me think. Um, I, I really loved Outcry. I encourage everyone to watch that one. It was on Showtime about Greg Kelly. Greg Kelly was a high school student who was wrongfully accused of molesting a boy. He, had lit, he was a football star, standout star, and his parents had moved to another town. And this other family, a booster family, had a, offered to take him in. And that family, the mother had an in-home daycare and one of the young boys at the daycare had said that somebody had molested him. And there was obviously coercion on the boy's part to name Greg and not this woman's son who clearly had done it. And so he ended up goes, going to prison. And so you watch over the, the, the episodes his story of being imprisoned and how he was ultimately exonerated of the crime. And he had this tremendous support of oh, his girlfriend and her family, and he ended up marrying her. And you're with him on the day that he, that you find he's out that he's been exonerated. And then he is pursuing a, a, a college degree right now and won a spot on the college football team in Michigan. So, you know, the story kind of goes on after the series and you're just pulling for him. And I have to point out to your listeners that he's like a huge, huge support, um, very supportive of the police department. He is a tremendous person. And I think, you know, if you had read about it on paper, you'd think he just hates law enforcement. But he's a total, totally supportive of law enforcement. And also he talked about his faith a lot. And when I interviewed him, I, he said that ultimately he feels like this responsibility to go back and to do some sort of prison ministry where he goes back and he helps the men that are still in prison because there are many that will never leave and that people should not be judged on one mistake and that many of those men helped him with his own faith while he was imprisoned and he owes it to them to go back and to help them. And I'm like crying my face off. Um, so I recommend that one. It's called Outcry, and that's about five or six, I'm going to say five episodes, but I've watched the ending, I don't know, maybe like four times. And then I interviewed him. I'm like, Greg, I'm so proud of you. Like, you can tell I'm a mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's, there's been a theme as well of the, the wrongful imprisonment, whether it is Now You See Us or... Um, yeah. Uh, God, what's that one? <clears throat> Actually, they haven't proven that he was innocent yet, but the... Trial 4? No, it was the one with the... The guy who, I think he owned a car, scrapyard, and there was a person killed. And then in the end, they rearrested. He was cleared. Then they rearrested him and his nephew, I think it was. Oh, I'm totally blanking on it now. I'll have to look it up in a minute. But yeah, so so they're still in prison at the moment. Basically, all the evidence through the lens of the way the story was told in the documentary suggested, you know, again, some foul play on, on the law enforcement and or witness side. Yeah. 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 In Greg's case, the, 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 the law enforcement did a shitty job in this little podunk town. And like I said, just an extraordinary human being to look past that and still be so supportive 
of law enforcement, I think is really fantastic. So I recommend that. I'm going to say those two are the ones that I want everybody to watch. Beautiful. Well, I haven't seen either of those two, so I'll put them on my list. I've seen a lot of them, RGB, some of the other ones that you had on. Oh, no, I'll cry. That's like number one. Like you got to watch that tonight and then you got to text me and tell me what you think because there are couples that will stop me and ask me like, what do I watch? And I always say to them, you got to watch Outcry. It's totally worth it. And then they'll text me or see me and say, oh my God, we were hanging on every episode. Beautiful. We just finished watching Manhunt, the uh, Richard Jewell story, the Atlanta bombing. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a sad story. Again, again he was, he was uh, you know, exonerated. And I just had a an actor who was falsely accused of, you know, um, sexual oh. assault. And it was complete false. Like one of the, the girls that accused him was in Australia. He'd never even been to Australia before. But again, oh he's God. like, there's all this press when you're accused and there's yes. no press when you're exonerated. That's so true. So that for the minds so of most people, true. you stay guilty. That's so true. Yeah. What about 13th? Have you ever seen that? 13th, I did, but a, a long time ago. Um, so I don't remember it as well. Um, Ava DuVernay uh, flick, I believe. Yes. Yeah, that was really good too. Yes. Absolutely. It should be probably a great interview. Yeah, if you can ever get her. It's yeah. Like, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, then you mentioned it earlier, and I'm just kind of curious about this side too. That you had some people that were, you know, reality stars or you know were featured in documentaries, you know, years prior, and you got the kind of where are they now revisit. So, mm-hmm. were there any interesting stories that came out of that lens? Eric Nice was on the first season of The Real World New York, and he was this like super cute guy. And then he came on and said, you know, I live in Hawaii now. I delivered my own baby. I'm like a life coach, you know, his wife's baby. I'm a life coach. And he opened up about being exploited as a young man and uh, taken advantage of with his finances. There was uh, an element of abuse there. And those interviews are way worth it when somebody's had time away from entertainment and they really have some really interesting perspective. But again, it's like if they're not, that's the the plight of a podcaster is like you want to get people to listen to an episode and maybe if they hear someone's name that they've never heard of or haven't heard of them in 20 years, like to get them interested is sometimes hard. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, then, so with with your own story again, so going back to, you know, the abandonment through, you know, um, from your father and then obviously being at a boarding school and pseudo-orphan, um, when you became a parent, what were what was the kind of self-talk of how different you were going to parent being given examples that, that you experienced as a child? Hmm. Well, I pay an enormous amount of attention about the people that are in their that are in their orbit. I'm very careful about play dates and who they're around and the coaches that they have. Um, I would also say I I really it's been important to me that they're exposed to different cultures. We have them in an IB school, which is an international baccalaureate, so they're around kids who come from different cultures or have parent or grandparents that are come from different countries so that the curriculum was also based on being a global citizen. So that's important to us. Um, going to Milton Hershey, you know, I, it's the little things like when I buy my daughter's dolls, I don't always doll, buy dolls that look like them. I make sure I get dolls that look different than them because it's like kind of sets the seed in their minds about the way we should look at ourselves as women and you know, what is beautiful. Also the books on their bookshelves are not all about white kids and privileged places. They're about kids who live in different pockets of the world who have had different kinds of life experiences. So 
I would say those kind of things and, and, and to always be curious. That's the most important thing. Ask people questions, talk less about yourself and learn more about others. Beautiful. Well, you, you mentioned living in Newport. So the other crazy, you know, tangent to this story is that when I was tagged, you know, with, with to you and your podcast and you were so kind to forward me the, uh, Norday's information, then we connected on social media. I realized that we had a social, excuse me, a mutual friend in one of my yes. best friend's wives, Melissa. So, um, yes. you know, tell me about how you met those guys. And just for everyone listening, Richard is the, um, one of the crew that I had in Anaheim, who's actually going to be my New Year's Eve um, uh, episode with the rest of my crew as kind of part two to that conversation. But anyway, um, so how were, you, how were you guys connected? Melissa's best friend, Christina, is one of my dear friends that um, it's my son's best friend is Christina's son when they went to preschool together. So I've known Melissa now for probably about almost 10 years now, um, through Christina and Clark Haney. So, um, and then she of course cut my husband's hair for years and until she likes, I mean, started her own big business. So yeah, we go way back and, uh, I just love her. I think she's so great. Beautiful. Yeah, I was just staying with them a few weeks ago. So right before the California slammer doors again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Brilliant. All right. Well, in transitioning, I love to do some closing questions and, and ask some some you know books and films that you love. But before I do that, you wrote a book regarding pregnancy. So tell me about that. Oh, it's you know, it's like something that you like. I forgot about it now. It was just quotes that I compiled from different women about you know you're pregnant when you know you're pregnant when you go to Costco for a refrigerator but leave with two pizzas. So it was kind of like a fun thing I did years ago. Brilliant. People can find that on Amazon. Yes. And what was it called? You know you are pregnant when. Beautiful. All right. Just want to put that out there. Um, so obviously we've explored some of the docu series that you recommended. Um, are there any documentaries that you love to recommend and what about just regular films um right now my favorite film to tell people about is called philomena and it's the story of a an irish woman trying to find her son whom she was forced to place for adoption in the 50s so i'm not going to say anymore because i want people to look it up but it's called philomena p-h-i-l-o-m-e-n-a um books I would say my favorite book to recommend is called Revenge. And it's about this woman who was a Washington Post reporter and her father had been shot in the head by a Palestinian. And uh, he was in his, um, a, was he a, a physician? Maybe it was. But anyway, she was, he was shot in the head and she goes back and lives in Israel with her husband right after she gets married. And she decides to write a book about tracking down that Palestinian and to find out why he did it to her father. And in the process of writing it, she actually begins to develop a friendship with him and his family. And so by the end of the story, she's looking at him across the courtroom because he's up for basically parole and somebody has to answer for his family if there's been forgiveness. And he's surprised to learn that this reporter who's been following him all this time is the daughter of the person that he shot. So that's a great one. It's called Revenge. It's actually called Revenge, A Story of Hope. Beautiful. Thank you. All right. The next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? 
I'm going to put you in touch with Bob, the one who was the witness to the Jeffrey McDonald crime. I think he would be extraordinary. He was an MP and then a New York police detective for many, many years. Perfect. Thank you. And then with that, did they ever resolve that? Did they ever figure out the crime? No, it's still unknown who. I mean, I think Jeffrey McDonald did it personally, but um, it's still an unsolved mystery. Interesting. All right. Well, then the the final question before we um, make sure everyone knows how to find your podcast. Actually, we'll, we'll get into the podcast a little bit too. Um, what do you do to decompress? Because uh, you know, I'm sure you're taking on some of these guests. Oh, I level. work out. Oh, I work out. That's it. <laughs> you work out. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. All right. So then, uh, first, tell everyone where they can find the podcast, and then again, you know, is there any any kind of uh, guests that you're looking for i can kind of return the favor if anyone listening might know how to reach out to someone you want to get to my show is called reality life with kate casey and i would love to talk to anybody who has participated in a documentary or who can provide insight interesting life experience insight um in coordination with a documentary that's out beautiful all right. Well, Kate, I just want to say thank you. This has been such a, a different conversation. You know, obviously, there's a lot of, you know, tactical people that come on here and medical, but obviously, fate put us together. Um, again, I can't thank you enough for connecting me with, with the brothers. I can't wait to do that conversation too. But, um, you know, your perspective, kind of, uh, you know, speaking to some of these people behind these reality shows and, 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 you know, the lens that you've looked through this has been fascinating. So thank you so much for being so uh, generous with your time today. Thank you so much.